This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Hello and welcome to Eat Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Andrew Cook. How are you doing, Andrew? Doing great. It's uh, great to be a guest on your show today. So today we're going to talk a bit about uh, career transitions and um, and some Azure functionality and DevOps type of things. But before we get started, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Andrew, and what and what you're doing? Certainly. So I'm Andrew Cook. I'm a software development consultant based out of Seattle. And basically what I do is I will go into large or medium-sized companies and really help them migrate to Azure, either embrace some new initiatives or take some existing legacy code and kind of get it up into Azure and really get the benefit of the public cloud and the ability to really embrace not having to maintain all of that hardware and then also being able to you know scale globally and so i I had a nice referral come through that uh, introduced me to you and one of the things that we talked about on the show uh, with that person that was julie torres Uh, she's the one that put us in touch she had a great story about how she transitioned from her uh, prior career to what she does now and uh, you have a similar story, so I, I just wanted to touch that real quick before we get uh, deep into the Azure discussion, uh, because I thought it was a, a pretty interesting story. So rumor has it you were a paramedic before you transitioned into software development. Yes. So I actually have a degree in paramedicine, worked on an ambulance as a paramedic for almost six years. And one of the great things with doing that is I worked about 60 hours a week, but I had 20 to 30 hours of free time in that. And instead of sitting around the station and watching television, I really decided to go out and learn development, uh, especially around the Microsoft stack. So I learned a lot of development, started up my own uh, little consulting business out of Arizona, um, created some applications, and then uh, about a year and a half ago, made a switch into full-time development. So kind of going from that part-time to full-time development and been doing uh, more consulting ever since. And I still enjoy being a paramedic. So I actually do that uh, part-time do through search and rescue locally out of Seattle. Interesting. So I, I picked up on a little something there that, that I I find interesting uh, that you, you learned this on your own. Um, on your, you know, quote, spare time. I have to commend you for working 60 hours a week and still calling the rest of the (laughs) the time spare time. Um, But you said, uh, more importantly, that you picked up the Microsoft stack. Is there a certain reason why you chose that or it just kind of happened? I think it really started back with access. So that's kind of where I first started realizing that, you know, by putting some data and some logic together, we can get some value out of it. We can automate something, we can record something. So kind of, you know, started with access, learned a little bit of the visual basic, and then created my like very first application in visual basic with classic ASP. And it worked. And then I really started to to create more and more side projects and realized that 
Visual Basic is great, but if I want to continue down this road and consider you know a career change into software development, I really wanted to go after C Sharp. It's a, it's a nice language to learn. It's a great language to know, and it's really um, predominant, especially in the enterprise setting. Yeah, I felt like that was an important path to kind of identify and, and share with listeners because I think I get a lot of folks on the show and and it's always um, you know a great perspective, but we get a lot of um, you know I grabbed this open source tool and you know I started you know with this thing because it was free and it was open source, or I started with JavaScript and HTML because there was you know no barrier to entry there, uh, but uh, I in the corporate software development side of things, you find a lot of people like yourself that started with Microsoft Access because that's like a, it's kind of like an all-in-one database slash programming environment, scripting language. I don't know how else you'd put it, but it's kind of like this mishmash of a complete development stack uh, kind of hidden in a database um, uh, application for your desktop. Yeah, what I, I really kind of view access as if you if you're familiar with Excel, you've got a bunch of tables and you can do some logic in there and kind of that next step from, all right, we think we might need a little bit more than Excel is really kind of that, you know, looking at access. And then once you kind of outgrow access, it's time to, all right, let's actually implement a full solution. Let's set up a some sort of a backend data store like SQL Server and, you know, put on a nice front end and get some more logic and do you know, more complex things like authentication and authorization where, you know, an access, it's really not designed the best to do that. But if you're, you know, say a mom and pop shop and, you know, you only need to keep track of very minimal things and you're the only one using it, access might kind of be the right thing for you at that time. But then kind of once you move beyond that, it's when you kind of get into the more enterprise level stuff and, separating out things and building that custom solution. Yeah, I've always found it to be a useful prototyping tool or a useful personal development tool for, you know, if you want to keep track of uh, your your books on your your bookshelf or a small business or, you know, something that's, you know, not multi-tenant. You're, you know, just using it for your own bookkeeping pur- purposes or whatnot. Um, but it's nice to see that you made the transition out of access into something bigger, uh, where I found uh, a lot of people in the uh, corporate IT world, they kind of get stuck in it and they either give up because it doesn't scale the way they thought it would. And then um, they, they end up passing it off to someone else to continue the project or uh, they just give up on it altogether. So it's nice to see that you made that full transition like through the stack to you know, the next type of, uh, you know, infrastructure, whether it's ASP, uh, you said classic ASP, right? Yeah. Uh, classic ASP. That was always fun. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a good spot to get started though. Um, I managed to just barely miss the classic ASP stuff. I was doing VB six and then I skipped the ASP and went straight into like the first generation of .NET which had its own set of uh, um, painful uh, <laughs> learning experiences <laughs> as that like grew maturity. Cause I mean, I caught it really early on. 
Yeah, I've I've noticed that I keep kind of, you know, every few years I I go from, all right, I I understand this technology, but let's learn the latest version of it. And the latest version really seems to benefit and solve a lot of the problems that the old one did. And then it will typically introduce, you know, new problems, which then the next framework will come out and solve. So it's, you know, the biggest thing I've learned is it's it's a journey in learning. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy doing problem solving. I enjoy being faced with a problem and just kind of hitting my head against the desk, you know, after try, after try, after try. But then finally you get success and it's, it's a lot of fun. So I've actually been known to, you know, do a little happy dance sitting in my chair. And so, um, when I'm in the office, I get little strange looks like what's going on, but it's, you know, (laughs) Hey, I just solved something that I was banging my head against, you know, for the past like eight tries. So always enjoyable. Generally, it's something very obvious, too. That's what always kills me. You're like, why didn't I think of that like an hour ago? Yes. <laughs> or or mine always comes to me when I lay my head on the pillow, right? It's like I've been beating my head up all day trying to figure this thing out. And then it's time to wind down and go to sleep. And as soon as my head hits the pillow, it's like, oh, if I would have just put this here and that there, it would have worked fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, and also being able to just kind of reach out to someone else and say, Hey, this is what I've tried. This is what I'm trying to do. This is where I'm running into the error. Just the, the process of explaining it will usually help unblock me and kind of unlock, Oh, I'm missing that piece. Cause I completely assumed I was doing it this way. But when I say it out loud, it makes so much more sense. So, yeah, I, I have a great example of that that has nothing to do with software development. And I don't know if I've given it on the show before. I'm sorry if I have. Uh, But I I moved into my house 10 years ago. And probably about six years in, I still had not figured out where the emergency water shutoff valve was. And uh, I had to get some work done on uh, some plumbing in the house. And I was like, I have to figure out where this thing gets shut off. I searched all over the house for it, like up and down. Uh, I have a drop ceiling in the basement, so I was flipping up the tiles, looking underneath every tile to see where the pipes went. I gave up. I went across the street, and I, I told my neighbor across the street, I said, have you ever been over here and worked on, on the house? Because you, you've been in the neighborhood a bit longer than I have. I said, I cannot find the water shutoff elf anywhere. I said, I followed the plumbing, and every time I follow it, it goes to the stairwell, and it just goes behind this mirror, and I can't figure out oh wait it's it's behind the mirror <laughs> and sure enough i walk back home and i slide the mirror aside and there's my water shut off <laughs> so, to yeah. your point well talking through it <laughs> absolutely a lot more sense yeah finding it myself i mean i'm just staring at this wall like i don't get it but uh once i worked through the problem out loud it was obvious <laughs> Yeah, it's it's that, you know, you keep trying, you keep trying and it's like, all right, why isn't this working? But it's, you know, just figuring out, Okay, well, for each of us, there's, you know, something that we can usually do to kind of help, you know, unblock ourselves. So I've been lately getting up and trying to walk around more and that usually helps just, you know, that physical movement and, oh, I need to try it this way. And then, you know, go back to my desk and try it again. And that usually works. So that um, that experience of like solving problems and kind of being creative, is that what 
kind of made you decide to jump careers from being a paramedic? So the biggest thing for me is I realized that being a paramedic, I really enjoyed problem solving and I was really good at customer service. And when you move into software development, it's a lot of problem solving and a lot of customer service. I still um, will interface directly with clients and business stakeholders. But then the other thing is you look at your fellow developers, you look at everyone else on your team. If you consider them to be a customer and try and take into account what can you do to make their life easier, it just makes it a much more harmonious team environment to work in. So that's really what I strive to do is what what problems can I solve and then how can I help those around me? And so I, I enjoyed that from the paramedic side. I enjoy that from the software development side. And then being a software developer, the work hours are a little bit better. I'm you know, not uh, working 24 hour shifts anymore. I'm, you know, not up in the middle of the night uh, responding to 911 calls. So a little bit uh, better work environment too. So one would probably expect that if you're coming from a career in medical, then you're probably doing software development in medical. Is, or is that not true? Um, that is not true in my case. Um, so I'm, a consultant to work for a consulting company out of the Seattle area. So we go with various clients in various industries, worked in the food service industry, worked in the hospitality industry. So just depends on whatever the client's industries is. That's the industry that I'll be working in that day, that week, that month, that year various projects we get to work on. So I'll work on anything from a day or two to a year or two. So it's a lot of fun to do, but a lot of variety. But when you kind of move from a profession that's not software development into software development, one of the things that I always recommend is leverage your existing experience in that industry, because you'll understand what the domain knowledge is. You'll understand what problems that you can solve better. You'll understand what the pain points are to being whatever your previous career was. And that's valuable information because right now when I go in and meet with clients and help them solve problems with software, I'm bringing in a lot of knowledge around software, but I need to rely on the client around the knowledge of what is your industry? What is your problem? So being able to have that underlying knowledge and experience puts you another step ahead of someone like me. Yeah, I think um, it's very similar to the way I approached software development when I was in the field a lot. Uh, I worked in heavy manufacturing and aerospace and defense and kind of a variety of things that, that had to do with either building something as a large machine or building circuit boards of some type. And uh, when I had to build apps, the ones that turned out the best were when I went to the people that actually had to use the applications, not just um, the stakeholder or the uh, you know supervisor, whoever was asking for this to be built, but the people that physically had to touch it on a daily basis and key in data to it or whatnot. Those were the people that really gave me uh, the... Uh, perspective I needed to build it properly. Oh, absolutely. One of the things I love to do is trying to understand what 
problem we're solving today and how that problem is currently being solved and then see if I can create some software around that that will help that process and also take the least amount of time to understand and train on. So if I'm creating something that you're filling out this form once a week, well, if I can make that form look the same as it does on paper, as it does on your computer screen, when you go to fill it out, it's going to take a lot less of your brain power to understand what am I asking for than if I wanted to say, oh, well, I don't like the look of the way the old form was. Let's completely change the order of everything and the look of everything. So now not only do you have to understand a new system, but now you're understanding a new process of something you're already familiar with. Yeah, I've, I've had a, a few instances like that where we pretty much went paperless on a, on a system where there was a lot of looking up references and loading machines with uh, custom um, like they were programs that would like uh, set up a piece of equipment and uh, we went from that to barcodes that you could scan that would load the paperwork that looked identical to the book that you used to have but it would load in the machine instead on the screen and then um, you could much more easily transition into loading the custom uh, software on the machine uh, through through that application than you you would manually before. Like we we took this whole process and just like crunched it into like a paperless system, which was really cool. But it followed that same principle of like don't change it so much that it's unrecognizable. Like we're we're gonna take this this old antiquated book that we have to flip through and just kind of digitize it. Yeah, and then the other thing is if you look at if you've got ten forms to fill out, but on each of the forms that are going to require the same four pieces of information. Well, you don't need to ask the user for those four pieces of information 10 times when you're doing it digitally. You can ask for it once and then save that them the time of filling it out and also reduce the amount of mistakes that are introduced by maybe entering it incorrectly one out of those 10 times. Yeah, I had a process I worked on one time uh, as an engineer we had um, we had a, a worker that, not for his his own fault, um, just his process was so complicated that um, it would lead to a lot of issues on the assembly line. So he would have to cross reference like several tables and then go through a flowchart with the values from the tables uh, to get a result. And then if he made his calculations wrong, which he was doing manually. Uh, that that would cause like thousands of dollars in damage to a product. And um, once I sat down with this guy, I realized that pretty much everything that he did could be done with like one key entry. And then as long as we had the data from these uh, references he had, um, we could we could actually build that into a, a database. Um, and then the flowchart he worked through, well, Computers are great at if-then statements. <laughs> so we, we managed to boil that all down into him entering uh, a barcode, uh, scanning a barcode, and entering some simple data and clicking through and like getting the results he actually needed accurately. And uh, he was so happy that we you know, made this piece of software for him. Um, it, like, it freed up so much of his time to do other things. And uh, it was amazing, like his quality of 
of life at work just completely changed. Oh yeah. I remember as a paramedic, I used to have a 10 page patient care report for every time I took someone to the hospital and on every page it would require, you know, name, date of birth, what the date was, what our internal tracking number was. So it had this, you know, five or 10 pieces of information that I was writing down on each of these 10 pages. And then we switched to electronic records and not being able to just record it once and then have it just spit it out on every page that got printed. It was it saved me a lot of time as well as saved me on creating addendums and crossing things out and rewriting them. So just the ability to you know automate that side, it's a huge impact, especially when you're the person that's doing that work. Yeah, I mean, that was that was always the real rewarding part, I thought, of uh, doing those type of jobs. Um, you know, of course, when you simplify things, it makes the company money and that makes the the top level people very happy and it keeps you gainfully employed. <laughs> but uh, being able to help people enjoy their jobs because they can do them easier, more efficient with a lot less stress that they're going to make a mistake. Uh, that was uh, one of the best parts about being in the field doing the consultant type uh, work that, that you're talking about. Yeah, I really enjoy it. And I like how software is able to kind of be that force multiplier for that workforce. So if you take a look at a, any given department, if there's something that we can automate in there, it means that department can handle that much more of a workload. And instead of doing all these mundane tasks like repetitive data entry, if we can pass that off to a computer program and now have people actually focus on the more creative and the more problem-solving side of it, it's just better for everyone involved. Yeah, every once in a while you run into people that that are scared you're going to create something that puts them out of a job, right? Absolutely. And if you look at it, we're always going to create things with technology that's going to replace something that was done manually before. You know, I have a dishwasher in my home and I love it. I hate doing dishes, but being able to just put some dirty dishes in the dishwasher and set a button and say, clean it, it saves me a lot of time and lets me do more enjoyable things. Yeah, I, I can safely say that pretty much everything I built eliminated a lot of time in doing monotonous tasks at work, but never got anybody like where they've they were eliminated from their job. <laughs> you know, they just moved on to other things that they uh, they needed to either do or enjoyed more. So, uh, you know, you always run into people that are scared you're going to put them out of work, but I've always found that's not the case. Yeah, I haven't uh, seen any cases where implementing a piece of software has entirely eliminated a position. Typically, what I'll see is a piece of software will ease a part of someone's position and then let them focus on something else. So if anything, it's more, it transforms in an existing position into something different versus completely eliminating something. Yeah. I won't say that's never happened or never will happen. It's just, uh, it's been my experience, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, the a lot of the new machine learning and AI stuff is kind of freaking people out right now, especially in that respect. Like they, they fear that it's coming after their job or something. And uh, time will tell, but 
Um, there's definitely some interesting stuff happening in the development space these days. So Yeah, and I look at AI and machine learning as really being able to take all of this data that your company may have amassed over the past several years and maybe you've not really done much with it other than some basic reporting and really be able to get a lot more value out of the data that they've been holding on to. And with storage becoming cheaper and cheaper, a lot of enterprises are realizing we can just hold on to our data and figure out what to do with it later. Well, figuring out what to do with it, that seems to be what's happening now is that more and more companies are realizing, hey, if we take a look and understand more about what the data is and what it says about our business, we can make smarter business decisions. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, this year's Microsoft build. They had some really cool um, technical demos last year that uh, that really showed off like what could be done with machine learning. Um, one of them, for example, was um, they, they had a drone that would analyze like power lines to to look for structural defects and stuff which was like a manual process that they had to do by helicopter and have an engineer on board and like fly an engineer around these power lines um, and they had automated this thing with a drone and um, they were using like image recognition to look for problems and then relay that information to the engineers after the fact rather than like have them physically on a helicopter <laughs> risking their life, like flying by power lines. So uh, uh, Microsoft Built's coming up again this year and kind of excited to see like what new ideas they share at the event uh, around that stuff. Yeah, it should be really interesting. There's so much data out there and we're just collecting more and more every day. And really the available of the ability to take a look and do things like custom vision and custom speech recognition. I mean, for example, in my house, I've got a lot of voice activated things like the Amazon Alexa and the Google um, Home. And for that to be able to you know, automate some of my home, it's great for me to be able to just talk and turn lights on and lights off and other things like that. Have you been able to um, try out any of the machine learning stuff in your Azure experience? I have not tried out any of the machine learning yet. I actually have a project that I'm working on. Um, at home, I've got my refrigerator and I added some temperature sensors to that. And I'm sending the data up to Azure and storing it in Cosmos DB. And then the next step is to put some um, alerting around it. So that way now I can tell, Hey, the power went out, the, you know, the food is getting too warm. I need to throw it out or, Hey, my daughter left the refrigerator door open. I should probably go close it before the food goes bad. So things like that, being able to understand, you know, what's, what's going on. And then, you know, eventually put some machine learning around that. So I can do some predictive analysis and understand what's what's going on and how cold everything is and how warm it's getting. So it sounds like outside of work, you still tinker with stuff in your spare time. Um, are you doing anything else like getting involved with the community or uh, you know, working on side projects? 
What are you up to at home? Uh, I I do a lot of both. So this year I'm really getting a lot more involved in the community, coming on to a few podcasts and speaking. But I've also been doing some technical presentations. So I've got a uh, talk coming up. I actually built a smart mirror last year. I built it with my dad and my daughter. So it's a computer, which is just run by Raspberry Pi hooked up to a television screen. And then in front of it is a semi-transparent mirror. So what happens is when the screen is completely black, it looks just like a mirror. And when the screen has some white text on it, you can actually see through that. So you can see not only the reflection of you, but also the text behind you. So it's kind of a great way to have a dashboard. Um, right now I'm working on getting Cortana hooked up to it so I can actually talk to it because I realized that the natural interaction model for a mirror should not be touchscreen because I don't want to get all the fingerprints all over it. So by having it be voice and being able to add things to it or interact with it, um, it's really kind of taking a place in my kitchen as the kind of my home dashboard. And what we do as a family is we plan out our meals for a week. So that way we know, all right, what we're having for dinner each evening so we can go out and make sure we get the right groceries and have everything planned and when I have uh, meetups or conferences that uh, I won't be home for that everyone kind of knows what's going on in our house so it's a, a great way to have that you know central dashboard so built that and I'm speaking about that on March 3rd at SQL Saturday Victoria and kind of going through not only that, but also how I use other smart technology in my house. So I've got some smart switches, the temperature sensors in my refrigerator, and then also built some skills for the Amazon Alexa. So I have to ask, when you're interacting with the mirror, do you, you say uh, Alexa, whatever, or do you say mirror, mirror on the wall? So <laughs> I haven't gotten that part working yet. Um, I've been fighting with the Windows IoT to get Cortana to work. So I'm actually in their uh, Windows Insider program on that to get that up and running. So eventually it will actually just be Cortana add a timer for 10 minutes or whatever it might be. And because the TV has speakers built into it, I get that, you know, I get a decent amount of sound coming back. So even if I've got a fan on the in the kitchen, I'm still able to hear the timer. I thought you might have a little legal trouble with Disney if you were doing the uh, mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> who's the who's the dearest of them all? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'm not all sure because that's it's always interesting because in Snow White they had the mirror on the wall, but then you look at Shrek and they also had the mirror on the wall. So it's kind of I'm not sure who really owns the copyright and. I really don't want to find out, so I'm going to stay away from that as much as I can. Uh, without getting on a tangent, it's probably one of those things that was uh, in the, like, um, what's that called, where the copyrights run out? Um, like, a lot of those stories, like, uh, Disney kind of grabbed out of that era. There's, like, a bunch of stories that came out of, um, they were copyrighted, but it, it ran out after a certain amount of years, and they're kind of free game. Yeah, public domain. So that's why you see them like reused in things like Shrek and at Disney. Yep. Uh, but Disney really capitalized on that stuff. But 
I digress. Back to some tech talk. Uh, another thing I think would be cool with this mirror idea is uh, leap motion. That'd be another neat thing to see because, you, like you said, you don't want to touch it, but leap motion has that like proximity sensor type of uh, interactivity. You can kind of wave your hands in front of it. Yeah, and I kind of looked at, okay, well, if I put some sort of a camera and do some gesture recognition, well, now you're going to have to... F- Uh, know what gestures to do for the mirror to recognize versus if you just speak English, that's something that comes a little bit more naturally. So that's really why kind of I'm leaning more towards, you know, just doing voice only. And then when I'm cooking in the kitchen, I'm usually, you know, have something in my hand that I'm moving from a counter to pantry to the fridge. So, you know, how well is it going to recognize when I've got, you know, uh, can of tomatoes in my hand and you know where where does that all fit in yeah if you have a camera in there you could do some interesting stuff too i know we mentioned machine learning earlier we could you could really make it kind of creepy because machine learning can do facial recognition and it could say uh, you could walk up to your mirror and it'd say why are you so upset today andrew yeah what's the matter (laughs) <laughs> well, not only is there good facial recognition that you can train, but then it can also recognize emotions. One of the more creative things I've seen with facial recognition was at a conference, I think, last year. I'm not sure which one, but Troy Hunt has the Have I Been Pawned um, website where you can check if your username and password have been included in any breaches. Well, someone tied into all the attendees' email addresses, got their profile pictures, fed that into this camera. And so basically, when you walked by this screen, it would recognize who you were. It would then look up your email address, see if you've been breached at all, and then show you that, hey, you've been included in X number of breaches or no, your information has yet to be breached. So it was a very interesting way of kind of tying all those different data models together and then also putting some, you know, vision recognition on it to really present something that was, you know, a great proof of concept, but then also useful to those uh, attendees. Oh man, that could be, that could be dangerous. You walk in front of the camera and it tells everybody in the room that your password was found on ashleymadison.com and then you have explaining to do. Yeah. Yeah. It can, <laughs> uh, it can definitely be uh Interesting when you start looking at the privacy concerns around data. Absolutely. Um, So uh, you said you were speaking at some code camps and uh, stuff in the area? Um, Yeah. So I spoke uh, last year at Seattle Code Camp. Um, I've got some uh, meetups in March that I'm talking at. So March 13th, I'm talking at the Seattle Web Developers Meetup at Seattle University. And I'm talking about Visual Studio Team Services. So really the ability to go from you know checking code into Git to having that code published on the cloud and really kind of going over that whole pipeline and kind of breaking it down and showing that this is something that is not only doable, but this should be the standard for everything that we're doing. Whenever we're starting a new project, and especially if that project is something we're getting paid for, we should have the ability to check code in and have it deployed in a click or two. 
And uh, when did you say that that meetup was again? We'll we'll include some show notes so people can find that if they're in the area. That will be on March thirteenth. Excellent. And um, and where can we find you online if we want to check out your your blog or what you're up to? So my blog is at codingwithcookie.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at codingwcookie. So I just couldn't fit the width into my Twitter handle. But uh, yeah. I'm fairly active on uh, Twitter, participating in a few um, Twitter chats every week. So really trying to get out in the community, get more involved. Um, speaking at, you know, meetups and conferences and really trying to not only learn, but then also share the things that I've learned along the way. Yeah, I think that's one of the best ways to get accelerated very quickly is to start teaching the stuff that you've learned. It helps you become an expert in it a lot, a lot faster. You have to, uh, you kind of get in the mindset of, uh, I really need to know my stuff if I'm going to be presenting it to these people. And uh, you get to really challenge yourself to become an expert very quickly. So it's always a good exercise. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that is I found that both in software development and as a paramedic, when I'm able to teach and explain something to someone else, it really helps deepen my understanding of it. Yeah, I, t I took a quick tour of the blog and uh, I noticed something that always uh, hits close to home and it that's uh, a mention of uh, a bunch of tools that you liked using and one of those was uh, Telerik Fiddler and I was like ah there we go Telerik Fiddler everybody loves it so it's uh, it's nice to have a shout out there um, I'm glad you're sharing that with people that's uh, that's one of the tools that we put out that people really seem to enjoy using yeah I, I, I put together a list on my blog of here's the things that I want to install when I'm starting a, a new project. I do a lot of full stack development, so it's really focused around that area. And I found that, um, especially with Fiddler, it really helps me when I'm debugging things that I'm coming from some sort of an API to my front end. So if I've got something in Angular and I'm calling back into a you know, web API, well, I want to be able to see what that whole um, interaction is. I can inspect a lot of it through just JavaScript, but being able to see the actual, here's everything that's coming in, here's the headers, here's the body, here's what I'm actually sending. So a lot of times I think, oh, I'm sending this, but I may have gotten my you know, JSON formatted a little bit wrong because I've had to do some custom formatting on it or you know, various other locations where I'm like, oh, I'm sending it to the actually the wrong endpoint and really being able to, to see that full message and then also replay it. So that way, if I need to do testing on that API, I now have a payload that I can just keep sending to the API over and over and over again throughout my you know testing and uh, development phase. And that really helps out a lot. Yeah, I use the tool extensively and it's not just because we make it, it's because it's so handy. Um, you know, you, like you said, you find a lot of, you know, easily fixed technical errors, <laughs> like, uh, for example, putting too many slashes in a URL, you know, simple mistakes like that are easily discovered, uh, through using Fiddler and, uh, just enjoyed seeing the, the, uh, mention there in the tooling. So it was, uh, 
referring to that blog post that you said you have. It's uh, kind of like the engineering notes of all the tools that you like to use yeah. in a daily, you know, and, daily setting. Yeah. And the other thing I really liked with it is it's telling me what my response messages are. So if I'm sending back a 200 or a 301 or where it is. So I've had some other applications where I'm trying to understand you know, why am I getting redirected to this other URL? And it's, oh, well, I'm actually getting a, a redirect response back when I hit it. So I'm not going to the right URL. So there's various different things I can find out by, you know, using that a lot quicker than if I were to try and hunt it down myself. Yeah. I didn't mean to like turn this conversation into a shameless plug, but it just so happens to be one of the tools that was listed on your site. And it's one of our freebies too. Like we've committed to making that free uh, indefinitely. So if people want to use it, um, we're not, you know, trying to sell you anything, Uh, go check it out for free and it's always going to be free. Uh, And then um, there's, uh, there's some core functionalities that if you want, to like incorporate it into an app or something like that that we we do charge for but uh to use fiddler like to inspect your traffic and and do all the things we're talking about completely free and uh it plan we plan to keep it that way yeah no i i love free when i was first starting to learn software development um a lot of my motivation was around what can i get for free or as close to free as possible and that was kind of the time when Visual Studio was just releasing their like Visual Studio for web 2005 and hey, we're going to make it free, but you can only do this little bit of thing. But, you know, yeah. that tiny little slice was plenty for me to to learn how to do development. And then, you know, I've kind of graduated and moved on to, you know, full MSDN licenses and full versions of a lot of the software. But a lot of the software that I use and what I list out, um, most of it will have a free version available, especially when you're first starting out. Yeah, that's um, that's available at Telerk.com if you guys want to check it out, and um, we'll we'll put those in the show notes as well as the link to uh, your website and blog. Um, Andrew, it was great having you on the show. Uh, it's interesting to hear about your transition through tech into what you do today. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. Thanks again.